Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dementia Researcher podcast. Today I am delighted to be joined by a panel eager and willing to talk about the Dementia Consortium and early dementia drug discovery and provide their perspectives from academia and industry. A survey from Novartis, Amgen and Banner Alzheimer's Institute from September last year showed that 91% of people from around the world believe medical research will result in a treatment for dementia. The study also showed that 60% of those adults believe a cure will be developed in their lifetime. So the Dementia Consortium is here to provide those sorts of answers for us. And it is a private charity partnership between Alzheimer's Research UK, Evatech and the pharmaceutical companies Abvi, Aztecs Pharmaceuticals, I can't say that, Isa Johnson & Johnson, Lily and MSD. Launched in 2013, the aim of the Dementia Consortium is to accelerate early drug discovery. So our panel today, we have James Connell, a research manager at Dementia Consortium, Declan Jones, the Vice President of the Neuroscience External Innovation at Johnson & Johnson Innovation Centre in London, and John Isaac, a Senior Director of, of the Neuroscience External Innovation at Johnson & Johnson Innovation Centre in London, and Professor Paul Whiting, the Chief Scientific Officer of Alzheimer's Research UK at the UCL Drug Discovery Institute. Welcome to all of you. Um, maybe Declan and John, those are quite some job titles you have there. Could you talk us through your backgrounds and what it is you actually do with those job titles? Sure. So I'm, I'm Declan Jones. So you know, we, we both work for Janssen Pharmaceuticals, which is the, ah, the pharmaceutical. It is, it is Johnson Johnson. So Johnson Johnson is a, a company which consists of the pharmaceutical division, which is Janssen, um, and then consumer health and medical, medical devices and so on. So it's a, it's a big life a healthcare company, but uh, we work in the, we both work for the neurosciences therapeutic area, so drug discovery for Alzheimer's disease, neurodegeneration wider than Alzheimer's and mood disorders. Um, so my background, I'm, I've been in the pharmaceutical industry for a long, long time. Uh, I actually, when I was thinking about it this morning, I've been involved in the pharmaceutical industry since an undergraduate. I spent a year working in a company called Organon. Um, I, my PhD was part funded by Glaxo. And um, I've probably been in the in in industry, Smith Klein Beach and Glaxo Smith Klein, and now Janssen for for nearly thirty years. So, and I'll, I'll, John, maybe if you can introduce yourself, and then yes, yeah, so I'm John Isaac. So I'm Declan's colleague at the Innovation Centre for for Janssen in London, um, and. Uh, again, so, I, so I've worked uh, as actually as an academic for a number of years, uh, but also worked for the Wellcome Trust and, and also worked for Pharma. So I was a, an academic for about 20 odd years, uh, University of Bristol. I was professor of neuroscience there. And then I went to the NIH in the USA, National Institutes of Health. I, I ran a lab there for a number of years. And then I worked for Eli Lilly in the UK, running internal research programs in psychiatry and neurodegeneration. And then I worked at Wellcome Trust for a couple of years as head of neuroscience and mental health, um, you know, grant funding. So it's an interesting, different side of the of the business. And then finally, uh, most recently, now working for Johnson and Johnson for the last three years. Wow! Why did you give up academia? Well, I, I mean, I was in academia for twenty years, and one of the attractions of working for industry is that your ideas, and particularly, I was working on how synapses, connections between neurons change during development and in plasticity, but also how they go wrong during diseases like dementia. 
And, and the idea with industry is I could come into industry and then use that knowledge to start drug discovery programs in mechanisms that I understood about. Um, so were you doing drug discovery before in academia? Or that was no, just understanding? No, it was academic, just understanding just... how synapses and circuits work. Mm-hmm. But many of the, of the targets for, for the newer drugs that are being developed are actually synaptic targets that, that I worked on as an academic. What model organisms were you using? Uh, rats and mice. And now? Uh, well, now I run a lab. So um, I work. I work collaboratively with other companies and, and academics who work on model organisms and, and other models. Okay, great. Let's move around the table to James. Welcome. You brought this uh, great panel together today. Uh, so I mentioned that you are a the research manager at the Dementia Consortium. Is that right? Um, so, so my my job title is research manager for Alzheimer's Research UK, but my my main role is uh, I suppose leading the Dementia Consortium um, with um, the seven pharma partners that we have and our partner contract research organisations as well. And of those, obviously, um, Declan and John, uh, part of J and J, as well as the other companies that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> Badly. Maybe you can <laughs> list them and correctly pronounce them. <laughs> um, so alphabetically, and this is going to be a test, yeah. Ab- Abvi, Aztecs, Isai, um, Lily, MSD, Jane J, um, and Takeda. I think that was seven. Um, if I've missed anybody, I apologise. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so we, um, the Dementia Consortium started back in 2014 um, when Eric Caron, who um, was previous director at UK, um, put the Dementia Consortium together. We also have a number of um, other initiatives, um, such as the Drug Discovery Alliance, um, and these are drug discovery institutes embedded in UK universities, of which Paul who's here runs the uh, the UCL DDI. Um, and so the, the aim of all these different initiatives um, are to fill the gaps that we currently um, know exist in early stage drug discovery and target validation for dementia. Um, and, you know, it's to address some of the challenges that I think exist um, in, in this space. Um, you know, partnering academia with industry, um, I think, is key to, um, you know, bringing successful treatments into the clinic in the future. Um, so, yes, yeah, so my role, back to the original question, my role is um, research manager at, um, at UK, but I lead the Dementia Consortium. And you said the um, Dementia Alliance and the <coughs> Dementia Discovery Institute, they're embedded in universities, but the consortium is completely separate, is that right? Yeah, they're com- complementary. So the, the, um, the Drug Discovery Alliance um, uh, and the Dementia Consortium sit in the same space. Um, but whereas the the DDA um, is um, funded by AUK, um, the Drug Dementia Consortium is funded by AUK and all the different drug companies that um, uh, risk share by in investing each each one investing in um, pr- the projects that come into the Dementia Consortium. I re- okay, cool. And Paul, hi, you are the Chief Scientific Officer at the Drug Discovery Institute at UCL. Could you tell us a bit more about your background? Yeah, sure. No, I am indeed. So, um, like some of my colleagues around the table, actually, I, I have, I've gone from the dark side to the bright side, or from the bright side to the dark side, depending on how you look at it, having spent a number of years in uh, in industry. And then in 2015, I decided I'd 
needed a change. I needed a new challenge. And uh, this opportunity to become the chief scientific officer here at, at UCL and Drug Discovery Institute came up. And uh, I was lucky enough to be given the position. And so we started in, uh, at the end of 2015 with just me sitting in an office. <laughs> and now four years, almost to the day, actually, we now have an, a good team of chemists and molecular biologists and neurobiologists and drug discoverists who are working very closely with our colleagues here at UCL, our academic colleagues and, and beyond, and indeed our, our industry colleagues. We have a collaboration, in fact, with, with Janssen on a particular drug target. And our goal is really to take the great ideas that evolve out of and come out of industry, uh, sorry, out of, well, out of industry maybe, but uh, certainly out of academia, and then turn those, de determine whether or not those are genuinely good drug discovery targets and we'll come on to that, I'm sure, in a moment around target validation. And then if they are, initiate, start a drug discovery program where we can try and develop drugs that we can then move forward for patients living with dementia. So that's what we're here to do. OK, great. Well, welcome again to you all. This is great. Let's maybe go right back to basics. As I was saying before we started recording, I am a basic biologist, but I have never discovered a drug. So maybe Declan and John, you can talk to us about how the process even begins, what makes a good target, and also what is target validation? I'm going to leave that to some of the last question to some of my colleagues. Okay. That, that, that's something that exercises the mind and has done as long as I've been in, in the industry. But, uh, I mean, for us, um, we, we have quite a significant internal uh, labs, uh, wet labs, and, and both preclinical and clinical scientists, um, both uh, for neurodegeneration based in, in our main campus in, in northern Belgium. So, our, uh, so, so essentially, we, we do the same internally as we do externally, which is how can we look for the science that we think is compelling that actually... Is, is worth the significant investment it takes to try and find, a, first of all, a small molecule that you might be able to then do some additional chemistry and turn into a drug. Uh, and, and maybe take, you know, so really, it's, is, the, is the science good enough to actually justify what might be 10 or 15 or 20 years of investment and, and will, will be hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not several billions, to try and develop a drug? So, so really, at each stage, we're just taking a bet that, that the biology is good enough to justify the risk to go to the next stage and, 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 and so on. Um, one, one of the challenges has been how, how do you validate a target? Because we don't, you know, the animal models, uh, th there is no model of Alzheimer's, there's no models of, of Parkinson's, no real model that absolutely mimics all the symptoms and the causes and so on. But can you, can you, can you, can you take the ideas from maybe the human genetics, from human tissue data, and then maybe try and model some of the hypotheses in the animals or, or cell systems. Um, so, so essentially, we're, we're, our, our job is really to look either to develop those things internally or to work with our colleagues in academia externally to try and drive those forward and, and share the risk, if you like. And really, that's why the Dementia Consortium for us is, is very exciting. We joined quite late. We joined in 2018. But really, it, 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 it trolls the, the world, if you like, for good targets which, where we can actually develop, share the risk in developing the target validation and maybe developing some of the early chemistry and chemistry tools to try and build on that target validation and so on. So, so for us, it, it starts with an idea. It starts with a, 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 the early stages of drug discovery look, look almost identical to what's done in academia. Do you believe the target? Can you develop the target? Can you, can you convince yourself it's worth spending a lot of effort on? Then after that, it, it becomes down more to uh, medicinal chemistry, developing assays for drug discovery. When you've got a molecule then to do the, the toxicology, pharmacokinetics and so on, so you just generate enough data that you can take the risk at the next stage and, and 
justify the investment. But I think at the earliest stages, something like the D Dementia Consortium is, I think, is a fantastic uh, venture. Maybe, maybe John or anyone to add, Paul, from your history in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. I mean, I think the, target, the whole piece around target validation is is, uh, is, is really nebulous, and, and it's very often hard to get your arms around thinking what it means, because it's not one thing. It's almost the coalescence of a whole bunch of data from different approaches and you pull that all together and you get that information and then there's almost a gut feeling does it does it feel right does it smell right does this feel like we should be investing in it or is there something missing something awry so while we'd like it to be some sort of quantitative tick box exercise and you tick all the boxes and away you go it's never really like that you have to use your intuition and experience to really really determine whether or not you want to take something further at least i don't know what you think john that's my kind of take on it no exactly i think it's a you know, triangulation of different sources of evidence i think you know the belief in a target so a target is a typically a protein that you want to, to stick a small molecule onto to change its function or you might use an antibody to do that or you might want to knock it down or overexpress it with a gene therapy approach but say it's a small molecule that you want to stick onto a protein like an enzyme so the question is is, is that is that mechanism it's, it's, is it's changing that mechanism's function causing the disease that you want to cure? So, for example, if it's Alzheimer's disease, is that target protein function altered and driving the disease? So one, one way to answer that is if you've got a genetic mutation which changes the protein's function, and if you have that, if you inherit that mutation, you absolutely get the disease. That's the simplest target validation. And, of course... Almost ne it's never almost never like that. There's very very rare diseases where you have these inherited mutations, but they're necessarily very rare. Can I just add that? Yes. Is that like familial Alzheimer's exactly disease? Like familial we talked Alzheimer's. about that exactly. a few yes. weeks ago. Exactly, yeah. 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 So sporadic Alzheimer's, there's genetic risk factors. Many of them, they will have small effect size. So what you you ask the question, what are the genetic risk factors? What is say there's one protein or pathways implicated by genetic risk factors, and you say we're going to pick one of the proteins in that, one of the mechanisms in that. So, for example, TREM2 is one that's recently been... There's a lot of evidence that that's involved in inflammatory pathways in the brain. Um, and you ask the question, what's the, what do you want to do to TREM2? Do you want to increase or decrease its function? And when do you want to do it during the disease course? Those are the two key questions. And you typically, as, as Declan mentioned, you can't t get that from animal models because you don't have a disease, the real disease in the animal model. But what you can do based on human data, studying human genetics, human brain pathology, maybe induce pluripotent stem cell neurons from humans, develop a hypothesis about the disease, and then you go model that in your cells or your animal and say, we think that increase or decrease TREM2 function in this period of disease is causing new degeneration. And then you want to go and drug that. I actually have a question about the disease model thing. So there just isn't an Alzheimer's disease model. Because obviously no, there's lots no. of people who have mice who have different yeah. genetic knockouts or mutations and flies and frogs and rats. You, but you can you can maybe you can model a hypothesis. So you, if you, know, you could say I'm I'm very interested in trem two, and you could you could, or, or I'm very interested in neuroinflammation or, or the role of the innate immune system, and you can maybe you can model aspects of that in a model, or you can take a model where you know a tower of expressive mouse and say how does that affect neuroinflammation. But, but what you're doing is, I, I, I think, for, for us, you, we use those as models of a, of a particular scientific hypothesis, not of the disease itself. Right, OK. Um, I had another question about 
delivery of various drugs that you have, obviously it's the CNS that's affected. Is this something that you take into consideration as well when you're doing your drug discovery, or is this a bit at a later stage and you're mainly no, early? I think that's a really important question. So, so you've got to think about if you're going to if you've got a, a target that's expressed throughout the body as well as the brain. If you're going to make a small molecule hit that target, there may be liabilities, toxicity liabilities of hitting that target in the periphery. So the ideal target is one that's only expressed in the brain. And the most ideal target is you want to drug a form of that target which is only found in pathology. So an example of that would be aggregated proteins or aggregated tau, which we pretty have a fairly good idea is a bad thing for neurons. So if you can selectively just hit aggregated tau and not normal tau, that's actually would be a, is a really good target. People have been working on this for many years. There's problems with that. So it's, but it's an important question for sure. So, so I think the advantage of the Dementia Consortium and I think of the, the DDIs as well is that you have a group of, it's a collection of academics and ex-pharma scientists and the pharma scientists have had to deal with these problems. And so they come with it with that mindset. And then you have the, the, the basic science or the exciting new novel science from the academic groups. And you can put those two together, I think. I think that that's probably the, one of the real advantages. I think probably unique, actually. I'm not sure this sort of arrangement exists uh, in other parts of the world. Yeah. You mean for dementia or for any...? Uh, um, I, I, certainly for dementia. I'm not aware of a, of a similar consortium. No, no, no. I think hats off to Alzheimer's Research yeah. UK for really driving this innovation, both the Dementia Consortium and also the Drug Discovery Institutes, the Drug Discovery Alliance, are really novel concepts, and, and ARUK have really led the way in establishing that. Uh, and, I, and, you know, I think this, this is a, a really potentially really productive path forward to, to to try and develop new therapies so one of the questions i have is what are the risks and challenges associated with drug discovery and that's sort of an open question but i guess in a way the consortium is helping to overcome the challenge of people working separately which is always a problem in science you work separately you don't collaborate then you know these ideas aren't coming together so i guess the consortium is overcoming that challenge but are there other risks other challenges you want to talk about is implicit in the statement that I, I think the last drug that was developed for Alzheimer's disease was in 1992, which would have been Memantine. And I don't know how many failures there have been since then. I don't want to bring the whole mood down, yeah, yeah. but there's been a lot. And, yeah. you know, so that tells you the ultimate challenge is this is exceptionally high risk and exceptionally challenging stuff. But the need, the medical need, is, is absolutely enormous and growing to a scary amount. So, therefore, we have to do whatever we can to meet that need. And one of the best ways I think we all agree, we might, we probably all agree, is by sharing the risk and working together so that the, 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 the sum is greater than the individual parts. And I think that's what these initiatives really, really try and do. There's a great, great quote from someone saying, let's gang up on the problem, not, not on each other, you know, and that, and that to me really sums it up. And I think, that, as you said, the ARUK have come up with a way of trying to get people to work together. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, it's so much more efficient than us all individually trying to work separately and work with, you know, fund individual projects or have projects internally, share the risk and actually share the knowledge. And James does a great job in herding the cats. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So I, I, and I think, you know, one of the, um, I suppose one of the problems that we've had in the past is that um, academics, you know, um, the grants that academics get, that, you know, they're, they're, as a priori their priorities are publishing and getting further grants and so their incentives aren't necessarily um, uh, you know, target validation to the level that industry 
might might do it because it's such a long process. So having a three year grant exactly, isn't and, good and, and it's you know maybe be on their remit if they want to publish something, but you know not, not necessarily needing to show that it's in, involved in human disease, for example. Um, so I think the the beauty of the Dementia Consortium is that we have um, collaboration between dementia experts in industry and in, in academia. Um, and bringing those two groups together brings, you know, synergistic ex- skills and expertise that, you know, work really well um, in, in what we're trying to achieve. I guess I have a bit of a cheeky question, maybe. But what is the motivation of a pharmaceutical company to get involved in dementia drug discovery? So you've talked about, you know, ideas and then you have to invest in it. You have to, it's many, many years. And like Pfizer last year, was it? ended their neuroscience drug discovery program, which would have included Alzheimer's disease and dementia drugs. So what is the motivation for a pharma company? It's hard to talk about a whole company. I mean, we're all, we're all individual scientists. I mean, my personal motivation is I've always, you know, I trained as a neuroscientist, psychopharmacologist. I, I've, I find that whole thing fascinating. I've mostly written my past worked in psychiatry, drug discovery. Um, we're making some progress there now uh, after, again, years of, of, of not much progress. Um, but but it's very very clear, I'm, and I'm also getting to the age where there maybe is some personal imperative, you know, in <laughs> in finding <laughs> new treatments for dementia. So so personally, I, I find it I find it fascinating. Um, for us it, within our company, we you know it's an, not an easy argument to make because this is an incredibly expensive, incredibly risky operation, and so we have to just we always have to justify say we believe that the science will justify significant investment and it's always based on the science because if the science isn't moving on then there is nowhere there is no way to it's impossible to develop drugs if the science isn't progressing um so our role one of our roles in london is actually to help work with uk academic academia is very very strong you know we've heard about the dementia consortium the drug discovery alliances we were able to help create a, a venture fund to help fund translation to new company startups and so on to to really build on the strength in neuroscience in the UK and so on so there there is a there's a real strength and I think it's a way of actually just energizing that and getting people people to work together and and then and then that helps us to prove that the science is moving along and justify within our own company that this is a this is a mission worth undertaking and I think so for us it's a it's a personal endeavor but it's also you know we work for people who are very driven psychiatrists neurologists who are very driven by the patient need but we also have to justify the, the significant investment. Yeah, this is sort of along the lines of what you, uh, Paul, were talking about, about the last drug that was approved was in the 90s and how this year alone quite a few phase two and phase three trials have been discontinued. Can you learn from those discontinued trials? It's not a waste. Surely it's not a waste. Is that something that the Dementia Consortium does? I mean, surely all drug discovery looks at that. I, I think that... Whenever you do a clinical trial for a new therapy, it's an experiment. So it's, it obviously it's an experiment, a very expensive experiment, quite a long experiment, but it is an experiment. Mm-hmm. And so inevitably when that experiment fails, or, or even a success, you always step back and you try and understand what happened and what you can learn from that so the next time you do it, you can do it better. And what I think is quite pleasing is that is more, more and more often now, particularly in the dementia field, the experiences are being shared across the community so it's not being all kept within the pharmaceutical company that happened to run that trial. They're, they're sharing their experience and what they learned from that so that we can hopefully do it better the, the next time. And I think, I mean, I think there's a lot of things I think we're learning about 
how to treat Alzheimer's disease, for instance. And I think one of the key things, at least in my mind, is that the earlier the better. And that's probably true for almost every disease, actually, to be honest. But I think we're certainly learning is learning that the earlier the better. Alzheimer's disease starts many, many years before you get those first symptoms. And so what we, we know is in an ideal world, we may well be treating, starting treatment 10 years, 15 years, whatever, before we first see treat, uh, symptoms in, in patients. So that, to me, I think is one of the key, key observations. Now, how we do that when we don't have the diagnostics to allow us to, to, tell, some, to tell whether somebody has, has, is going to get Alzheimer's disease, that's a whole different can of worms. But nevertheless, I think that's one of the, the key learnings. And, and it also has pushed the field to, to, to look for diagnostics, yeah. you know. And, and again, I know IOUK is involved in some of this work as well. That's a really key thing. Could you do a blood test that tells you 10 years before you have symptoms that you've got amyloid starting to accumulate in your brain, for example, for Alzheimer's? Or Parkinson's is the other one. When you have motor symptoms, you've lost about 70% of your dopaminergic neurons. So can you, again, detect disease happening much earlier before you get symptoms? And I think, you know, if you, if you look at either end of the drug discovery um, chain, um, we are learning lots of things. We're in a learning phase, aren't we? So, if, for example, clinical trials, we're learning about new biomarkers or new cognitive tests or the fact that we have to go earlier when we do clinical trials. Um, but from a, the, the very first starting point as well, we're learning that, you know, genetic risk factors are simply that we need to then deconvolute or, you know, look at the function of the, the risk factors in cells and then try and work out if they're going to make good targets that cause disease or if they're just a, a byproduct of something else that causes the disease. So we're learning, we are in a learning phase, yeah. I think, for dementia. Um, and I think there's also the, the whole public-private partnership in the UK, I think is there's almost a, a joined-up series of initiatives from the, the Dementia Research Institute and the Dementia Consortium, the DDIs, uh, the venture firm that will fund company formation, but also uh, Dementia's Platform UK, which is to do exactly that. How can you do a better job of, of the early phase zero and phase 1b studies so the early phase zero how can you d define biomarkers phase 1b how can you actually test a drug as early as possible and understand is it getting into the brain is it having a biological effect and those all the things that those are the advances that have been made i think so we forget those we lose those um we lose we, we don't hear about those advances we hear about the failures but mm. i think the field is moving along not as quick as we'd like but it is moving yeah, that's interesting. So you only really hear about the failures, and that's true, and it can seem quite doom and gloom. But uh, I guess you have to try and take the positives from it, and if the results are still being communicated and you can learn from it. I think that sometimes you get the impression that, like you said, pharma keeps it to themselves, or they'll publish it in a very um, thought-out way that... <laughs> <laughs> let's <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> you know that is published and then you're not quite sure whether the results are really what they're trying to say <laughs> uh, can i counter please <laughs> please do that I mean, actually pharma it has a much much better record of publishing <laughs> as it, i think there was a recent report of all clinical trials <laughs> and uh, unfortunately universities have got a long way to go to actually um publishing clinical trial data. Okay, so, good to know. So I'll, I'll just say that. <laughs> well, I, I think, um, you know, you say it's not, it's not the fact that the successes aren't publicised. They don't get as high as publicity. But, of course, mm. if you read the, the literature, mm. if you go to the Outs Forum, for example, you see all this, mm. all this progress. So so they, there is a huge amount of progress. They're just when you, get, when you have a phase three clinical trial that cost mm. $300 million to run and took five years total start to finish and it fails that of course is huge news and yeah. so you only hear those big sort of negative events in the daily mail I mean, again just there was some good news this week in um a company in the us acadia was was showing benefit against at least some symptoms in in alzheimer's disease psychosis with a with a drug which they've also shown had some benefit in 
similar symptoms in Parkinson's. So again, that was that that was actually very good news, you know, on a quite a robust study. So, um, you know, just <laughs> up the up the atmosphere there. <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's go back. You know, we, we do have a big problem, don't we, in in terms of dementia being the, you know the biggest healthcare issue in mm. in the world today, and clinical trials failing. We've had half a dozen this year. Um, base inhibitors and amyloid antibodies um, that have failed because of one reason or another. So we have to think about, you know, the, the Dementia Consortium and other initiatives like that. Um, we're trying to, from the bottom up, expand how we or increase the capacity for um, different ways of getting to new treatments in the clinic. Um, and, you know, the big question is, you know, what are the main targets or what are the, what makes a good target? Um, what are the key things to target in the diseases that cause dementia so these are huge problems huge questions that we're facing um, I wonder because you said about obviously this whole thing is at the beginning you have an idea and you're all deciding whether it's a good target whether you should invest in it and then you hear about the trials failing is it and then you say you should increase capacity is it that you're just not doing enough trials so do you see what I mean? So in cancer, it may be the same percentage of failing. You just don't know because there are so many more successes. And that's one of the areas I think we, we're, we're working to try and fill. So, so Paul said a clinical trial is an experiment. A phase two trial, it might cost 300 or 500 million pounds, but it's, it's an experiment. Uh, you're asking the question, is, is this going to work? So how can, we, how, can we do much, how can we do more studies in, in man mm. in a smaller scale? And that's something that we're trying to work with with Dementia's Platform UK. How can you do a meaningful study where you can say, actually, again, demonstrate this drug gets in the brain. I think we're much better at that than we used to be. Um, but maybe it has a biological effect that you think will then predict that, that you know, there's a robust biological effect that may be on the, an immune system or synaptic function that you say that now I really feel confident that I can test that hypothesis in phase two. In the past, potentially, we've gone to a phase two too early mm. and not had that confidence. But all, all you can do is, is how, what can we do to actually make sure that the phase two is a good experiment? Um, we, we'll never be able to really predict until, you know, at the moment, we can't really predict whether it will really work. But, but you really want to be able to say, I did the right experiment with the right, the right tool compound. I just how much mathematical modelling can be used in this when you say about predicting? Is that, I mean, that must be something that can be done? I, I, I don't... I, I'm not sure about the predicting the biology, but perhaps you can do it in terms of maybe able to design the experiment. Mm, but, you know, okay. Hopefully, you know, picking the right subjects or having the right subjects, you know, volunteer. I guess that's that, where the DPUK come in because they have that massive cohort of very exactly. You know, again, so I, you, you, again, they can use that to say, okay, can we help that to generate novel targets, novel biology, but also can you actually really characterise a group of people and say, actually, these are, this is the right group of people for my for my treatment, my potential treatment. Mm. I mean, Paul. Like, you're, if only, if only you could put it all in a supercomputer, press the button, and it spits out the answer. I think we do. We are increasingly using these. And the new sexy term is artificial intelligence, AI-enabled drug discovery, and this, that, and the other. Um, and we are beginning to use those in our in our in our, in our drug discovery programs, certainly to help design better drugs or better potential drugs but actually unfortunately it still comes down to to experience and, and know-how and designing is, as Dex said your clinical study so you really if it doesn't work you can walk away and you said actually it was a good experiment 
we believe the answer, this mechanism does not work, nobody else wastes your time on this mechanism, it's, it's gone. And I think that while that's not the most desirable outcome, it's kind of a, it's a better than, a, than a, an outcome where you say, well, well, we did the experiment, and boy, was that a rubbish experiment. And we've no clue whether or not we've tested the mechanism or not, and we've just spent £20 million. So that, that to me, is the worst outcome. So I think more and more now we, 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 we do do good experiments, and I think that that's critically important. I actually have a very basic question, but if a trial fails, is that it, the drug shelved, you never hear from it again, or...? Does the drug come back somehow with another drug as like a co-drug or is that it? It's just gone out of your life. I mean, sometimes um, the drug can be tried in a different indication. So there could be reason to believe that it, you know, it would say it failed in Alzheimer's disease, but it may work better in Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. or ALS or some, or some other. And that mutation. would be that maybe you didn't have the right. Uh, people in the drug could be the, trial yes, to begin yeah. with. Yes, um, and it could be that you're treating it, you know, you're, maybe you're looking, look, say neuroinflammation as an example. You see neuroinflammation in mul- multiple neurodegenerative disease, diseases. Um, and it may be that actually the type of neurogenerational type of patients with the drug would be better suited in that patient cohort as opposed to, say, the Alzheimer's disease patient cohort. Like in cancer, there's a lot of, you know, it fails in lots of patients, but it turns out they don't have the right mutation, yes, or if they do, right. then it's vastly yeah. improved survival. You know, I think a lot of these drugs that have failed may well may well reincarnate themselves <laughs> in the future as, as a... As a uh, as a as a as a, tri- as a co-treatment with other drugs, because mm. we're going to Alzheimer's disease and dementia is going to be multiple, going to require multiple treatments, multiple medicines at the same time. So I'm pretty sure some of these will 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 will, will reappear again. And the other thing is there's, there's this consortium called the Diane Consortium, which is which is in families of in, which is people who have inherited forms of Alzheimer's disease. So a lot a number of these drugs that have failed in what we call sporadic Alzheimer's disease are still being evaluated in this very specific, very well-defined population of patients who have genetic forms of of the disease. And uh, the outcomes of those studies will be in the next couple of years, really. And so that's going to be really exciting because I think that will tell us also a lot, again, about about mechanisms and and disease and and targeting specific patient populations. Talking about, you were saying about uh, that maybe we don't target things early enough... Is it that maybe these drugs could re- be repurposed for something that you take in your 30s to help you, you know, and over the course of your lifetime, you take a variety of different drugs at different stages of your lifetime? I don't know. No, I Sci-fi. think... Well, you think about aspirin now, for instance, or um, or the statins that people take uh, for cardiovascular disease and cholesterol lowering. Intuitively, why wouldn't you take the same approach for, for Alzheimer's disease? Of course, if you that, that requires... The, the biomarker, the elusive biomarker we've been discussing, you, you, so that you're giving you're giving a, a medicine to a patient who will has the potential to benefit from that therapy. I don't think you just give it, bung it into everybody because that both that's and not the really ethical. Of the medicine has to be absolutely almost perfect. So you can't if you haven't got a disease, you take a preventative medicine, then that preventative can't be having any significant side effects. That's really so it makes the bar very high in terms of developing those sorts of drugs. But I agree. I think. You could see a, a treatment where you, you could prevent production of amyloid hmm. as the triggering event for Alzheimer's disease, which, so as Paul mentioned, is probably 10 to 15 years before you see symptoms. So if you could identify those people of just starting that process, they could take an anti-amyloid agent. And, and a lot of trials have been done um, in, in people with mild to moderate AD, mm. and it's obviously, obviously too late for, um, to see any beneficial effect. But if 
uh, you know, the the first depositions of amyloid in the brain uh, are the thing that then trigger you know various cellular responses. Um, it's it's getting it to the point where you know you're treating somebody early before there's any um, damage. Because if you've got a failure of damage responses, for example, after um, cells have seen amyloid, then there's no point in clearing amyloid because the damage has already been done. Um, so it's you know obviously diagnosing early and treating yeah. earlier is is key. I mean, I, I think that's. You know, from all of the, the failures, one of the key learnings is, is exactly that. It would have been very weird 10 or 15 years ago to try and treat someone who yet didn't have symptoms. Um, because we and So we've developed the tools to say, actually, this person, and we, we, we had a trial like this, to say that this person has an A-beta signal but has no obvious symptoms. Now, that, that wouldn't have been possible 10, 10 years ago. And it wouldn't, and and I don't think anyone would have would have would have suggested that was a sensible idea. In hindsight, it's an, it's it's an obvious idea, yeah, but it does but seem you know, yeah. But well, ten or fifteen years ago, to say I'm going to try and treat someone who has no symptoms of of dementia with a with a drug, and I'm going to treat them for decades, that, that, I don't think that would have that wouldn't wouldn't have flown. And so I think at least there's a fundamental understanding now that 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 is the way forward. So the dementia consortium. It sounds like an amazing collaboration and it is a source of funding in this vital area. So to those listening who are interested in applying to the Dementia Consortium, what do they have to do? James, maybe you could... Um, so I would suggest the best thing to do is to contact um, myself at Alzheimer's Research UK um, in the first instance. We also have um, a, a quarterly call for proposals um, on our website. Um, but, I'm, you know... It, it's often a good idea to have a chat first just to see what stage your research is at um, before you, you, you apply and if there's anything that we can do or, um, or help you to, to make your application. So um, we've got a um, Dementia Consortium Roadshow um, coming up on the 19th of September at UCL. Um, <clears throat> again, you can register for that on our website um, and that will encourage... Um, academic and industry partners to come together and, and network um, for a few hours. There's some talks from academics. We also have one in Manchester in October and in Oxford in November as well. So, um, we, you know, you can register for the different events depending on, on, on where which university you're at. OK, great. Well, thank you, Declan, John, James, Paul. It's been really, really interesting. And uh, maybe I'll see you at one of the roadshows. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.